We are not professing to tell you the complete story of these activities. Yeah. We are professing to tell you the complete story that we know. Right. But these records that we've uncovered yeah. don't tell the story. They tell pieces of it. This is the story of a 30-year search by U.S. intelligence agencies to perfect mind control. The search would be endless, from brothels to the mystical rites of a magical mushroom ceremony performed by an Indian shaman. One intelligence agency tried to peel this man's mind back to reveal its deepest secrets. I go to work, I don't think about work, I just do me work, but uh, I'm thinking of me pleasures all the time. The dark match, what I'm going to do at the weekend, a little bit of golfing or football. Go to work, do me work, and enjoy myself for that day. This is Tim, and you're listening to Music for Films, the underground film podcast. And I'm sitting in a soundproof booth in Scotland with film historian Dr. Shruti Narayanswamy. Hello, Shruti. Hello. Happy 2022. Happy 2022. This is part two of a show we've made about Joe Massett's psychedelic odyssey. We started off talking about Wonderwall and a very interesting music that George Harrison recorded in India to go with that film. Probably the best thing about the film, to be quite honest. Yeah, I think so. But we thought we'd look at some other work by Joe Massett, because he's a very interesting guy. Uh, so in this second part, we're going to mainly talk about his psychedelic western, Zachariah. I think it might be one of the last podcasts in this sort of box set format we do. We talked about this last time that We've been in lockdown for ages. Yeah. And I think by now we're recording this in the middle of January. We thought that, you know, we'd be going out more and... Uh, well, you were going to be in India. I was supposed to be in India. And with any luck, you're still going, but you had to put all those plans off. So while we've been in lockdown for two years now, almost, we've made these shows where we, we pick some films which are not necessarily masterpieces but they're very interesting films and well, they're uh, films that not a lot of people have considered yes in a serious way and uh, we tried to do that so I think it was quite a worthwhile experience so what we've been talking about is psychedelia and the way in which the emergence of a kind of psychedelic aesthetic through music primarily and also fashion and art and graphic design and also cinema these films that we're talking about Wonderwall, Zachariah a couple of other movies we'll, we'll touch on while we're having this discussion they none of them are without problems nowadays we're yeah. obsessed with how everything's a kind of microaggression but I mean generally speaking just to kind of front load what we're talking about to kind of summarize what we talked about last time we won't talk for two hours about no Zachary. i mean i think there was a lot to say about wonderwall Zachary's a very interesting film but yeah i mean if wonderwall was a was an odyssey Zachary is more of an oddity but it's another example of how it can be quite freeing quite yeah. liberating yeah and an example of which which we're listening to right now i promise you you won't guess who this drummer is. Ginger Baker. 
We'll talk about Ginger Baker later, funny enough. Um, someone even more influential than Ginger Baker. This is from the 1967 album, The Psychedelic Percussion of Hal Blaine. legendary session drummer so he was part of the wrecking crew that played on the uh, all the monkeys tracks obviously Mike Nesmith has died since we did the last yes. show very very sad we would be here for an entire podcast talking about Hal Blaine's career but just two examples of pieces of just like cultural furniture that typify the Hal Blaine sound are things like Carpenter's version, though Hal Blaine did record with the Carpenters because he's playing the drums on uh, They Long To Be Close To You. Okay. Uh, he had this very, very distinctive drum sound which is probably encapsulated in this. that very sadly Ronnie Spector has died of a heart attack. Very sad. Literally as we were making the show. So very strange. Go back. Very strange. Amazing career. Yeah. Amazing talent. This will add even greater poignancy to the planned Ronnie Spector biopic. Guess who's been cast as Ronnie Spector in the biopic? Who? Zendaya. I mean it's going to be incredible. That's an amazing yeah. piece of casting. Yeah. Part of what made Ronnie Spector the legend that she was and is was that very distinctive Hal Blaine drum sound. But to bring it back to Zachariah and Psychedelia, when Hal Blaine got into a recording studio assisted by uh, Paul Beaver of Beaver and Krauss, you can hear as the sound bed the track Circle X from their 1969 experimental electronic keyboard album Ragnarok, brackets electronic funk. Uh, the great pioneers of electronic music, uh, that album's got sleeve notes from George Martin, the Beatles producer. They also did a, a B-side of a George Harrison Moog album. But on this occasion, Paul Beaver helped Hal Blaine release this kind of trippy out there yes. sound that was the only time anyone heard it from Hal Blaine Beaver and Krauss are perhaps 
not as well known as other electronic music pioneers like Wendy Carlos, the hooked on bark woman or Tonto's expanding headband. Beatman Krauss are kind of more in that bracket with Gil Malay actually who we talked about a lot when we, yes. we talked about the drama strain. This is so bleak. I mean, this is, I think this music is still asking to be used in some kind of retro horror film. Yeah, it sounds like a Christmas genre. Very much so. Very, very useful. I mean, you could just talk endlessly about all the things that Hal Blaine recorded on, but here's just a Here's just a fragrant nosegay, a bon bouche of his output. Surf City, Jan and Dean. I get around, the Beach Boys. I've got you babe, Sonny and Sher. These boots are made for walking, Nancy Sinatra. Mrs. Robinson, Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah, could have Trap. worked a bit harder on that discography. Dizzy, Tommy Rowe, the original version of Dizzy. Aquarius, let the sunshine in, fifth dimension. We just watched a Summer of Soul, didn't we? Terrific yes. oh, documentary. Oh my goodness. About the Black Woodstock. I mean, wow. it, I just, I was just overwhelmed by how incredible and moving it was. I think it's a documentary to be. I, I, I don't think I could watch it all in one go. Just yeah, it's too much, just, really, isn't it? It's, it's too just much too joy. Much. Too yeah, much positivity. It was just incredible. At least for 2021. Yeah. But so how Blaine is just like the kind of the phantom thread just kind of running mm. through this whole musicology of, a tw of the 21st century. Bridge over troubled water. I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. And yet in 67, he recorded this uh, very, very strange and angular album with Beaver and Krauss. And what a strange thing it is. The fact of electronic music and the fact of this psychedelic vibe, you know, having its hot moment in the culture was wonderfully liberating to all kinds yes. of artists yeah it was uh something i was thinking about when watching zachariah because i think it can be quite tempting to just sort of label a film like that just oh it's a it's a bit of a cult film in the sense of oh it's just a bit weird it i mean it shot wonderfully technically speaking it's sort of following all the rules um, so to speak of filmmaking but in terms of just its narrative structure and just what's going on um, all of those rules are being broken you yes. often don't really know as the the audience that you've just just been plonked in the middle of, of a of a desert in Zachary not quite, really quite sure what's going on it's it's just a vibe with all these acid rock yeah, bands turning yeah. up at random and playing quite long yeah, the, so the story re doesn't really go anywhere, does it? Not really entirely sure what 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 you're looking at. Uh, so you raise a very interesting point, and this is this is something you started talking about in part one when we talked about Wonderwall, uh, and I've been thinking about this a lot since we had that discussion. So at the end of part one, we had that little clip of Ravi Shankar talking about how George Harrison actually was quite a serious and quite sort of level-headed student of um, the sitar and was taking it quite seriously. So it's this idea, this is massively oversimplifying something quite complicated, but that sometimes to introduce one new dance step on the dance floor, the best way is back it up with two old dance steps. Yeah. That in a way, a system of musical teaching or teaching of anything actually from your culture from India when that came into the West this system of copying things and doing things by rote was actually surprisingly liberating because suddenly all these white kids all these white musicians were trying to make this kind of oriental psychedelic sound the thing about the Moog synthesizer and all the other electronic synthesizers they had this kind of Eastern sound yeah. because they were notorious for never staying in tune so they all have this kind of mordant sound yes. and they lend themselves particularly to horror and this very kind of bleak Jalo-esque horror yeah. because everything's slightly detuned. Everything's slightly gearing towards yeah. blue notes and, and minor chords. Yeah, well, 
much like um, the uh, Martinet. The Honest Martinet, yeah. yes, which we'll talk about in a moment. Mm. But so the, the just the kind of the idea or how to the Western ear people heard Ravi Shankar's music, they may not really have understood the point of it or um, any kind of context, but really just this idea of this form of music where you don't have a decatonic musical yes. scale, there aren't fixed points, it's all about bending the notes. That in itself was uh, curiously liberating yes. for a lot of people, including our blame. So you were talking about this track from Wonderwall Music, the George Harrison album, as uh, kind of summing this, this idea up. So this is uh, Guru Vandana from yeah. Wonderwall Music. You were telling me there's a whole backstory to this track, which I think is quite revealing of this idea of how uh, the indebtedness of a student to a teacher and going back over many generations then in the modern generation can be quite liberating, can free artists up. Can you explain that? In almost every sort of traditional Indian art form, whether it be music or dance, you will have a, a song or, or it might be if, if you're learning Bharatnatyam or something. That's the so Indian dance, traditional yeah, dance. Yeah, South Indian traditional dance. There will be a piece that you learn to perform which is all about paying tribute to your teacher. So if you go to, um, for if, if someone's been learning Hindustani classical music for many years and um, they do their first solo concert, this is sort of introducing themselves as, a, as an artist to the world, the first thing they would play is a, a song for the guru. Guru is your god, so it's it's not just someone who. It's it's someone that you sort of owe a lot in your life to, so you give them the degree of respect that you give to a guest, that you give to a parent, you give to a give to a god. So um, yeah, it was it was interesting. I I don't remember what the scene is in Wonderwall, but it really did not match. <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, with the track when I saw the name of the track. That relationship between the student and the teacher is not just one of homage. There's an element of the, of the sacred, there's an element of religious ritual to it, even though it's not kind of formally part of Hindu or Vedic religious tradition. Have I got that right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think, I think it's more of a... It's, it's more of a widespread cultural ideal. We celebrate Teacher's Day in India. I don't know if that's a thing here. But 5th of September, sorry, it's a bit of a detour, but uh, what we did in, in my school on Teacher's Day was that the teachers didn't teach in the school. And some of us, we would dress up as teachers and the students would uh, go into classes and into the lower class. So I, I, I went, when I was in, the seventh grade. I went to like a fifth grade class and I did the did the lesson. So it's sort of acknowledging your debt, your lifelong gratitude to your guru for passing on this. You know, it's it's not just knowledge. It's also all of the tradition, the, 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 the weight behind all of that knowledge. It's, it's acknowledging that debt to them, but it's also acknowledging the fact that it's a system where it gets passed on. So it so. says here, Teachers Day in India is celebrated on the 5th of September to commemorate the birth anniversary of Dr. I shall now macerate your beautiful native tongue, Dr. Sabrapali Radhakrishnan. Yep. He was a renowned scholar, recipient of the Bharat Ratna, first vice president, the second president of an independent India. Yes. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it is pretty cool. Now, uh, although we've sort of dragged our feet a bit about making this part two, it's been lucky in some ways, and on this sort of idea of how aspects of Indian or, or Asian culture did make their way into a Western consciousness in the 60s. Something that's been on and much talked about during our break 
over the Christmas break is of course Peter Jackson's epic documentary Get Back. Here's a clip which uh, may make you smile. You may have some other emotional reactions to it as well. <laughs> oh, Hare Krishna. Yeah, those people. Harry who? Hare Krishna. Uh, do you like India? No, not really. So uh, that's a clip where Michael Lindsay Hogg, who is a film director who, who made the Let It Be documentary, which is kind of the earlier version of all, of all this footage of the Beatles recording their last album, Let It Be. Uh, he's sitting in the studio at Twickenham because Ringo and Peter Sellers are making uh, The Magic Christian. And the Beatles didn't know what to do for their next album, so the idea was to do a live uh, TV concert because the Rolling Stones had just done one which also wasn't released at the time the Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus so the Beatles were going to do their own one in one of the spare studios at Twickenham that wasn't being used for the Magic Christian and so the Harry Christians have sent round a bouquet of flowers for George but this is just after George has walked off the job he's just finally thrown a strop about Yoko being around too much and no one actually knowing what they're going to do with the concert or the album or their careers or lives so George just goes Right, that's it, I've left. See you around the clubs. And he just very calmly walks out. But obviously he wasn't, obviously wasn't that tight with the Harry Krishnas at the time because they sent him round a, a bouquet, you know, thinking of you, George, the Harry Krishna cult. And there's other shots in this episode one of it of George has got all these kind of stragglers and entourage who are just these kind of Harry Krishna sort of tramps. George wanders off because he's had enough of Yoko sat there doing her knitting. At least I kind of watched it, just thought, yeah, all right, George, fair enough. That's a bit rich, though, because you've brought three of your weirdy mates as well. Very strange. But so, yeah, then Ringo's kind of, I mean, he's being pretty honest. I mean, tell us what you really think. Big Brexit supporter, Ringo Starr. <sighs> no comment. And here's another clip, which I think is also quite revelatory. I've been to India, have Oh, yeah, I've been I aware. looked at mine last night, it's the next to me pepper suit. <laughs> well, that's sugar this year. Mm, me too. So, uh, if I remember, I'll create. And Linda, remember that thing you said the other night? We went up in the helicopter with him. You just thought he might slip you the answer. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he might fly off. <laughs> sort of, oh, tell me, old master, and that. Tell me, old master. Hey, hey, John. Other right. way, John. I've been meaning to tell you. Meaning to tell you, son. It's uh, the word is Bargira. <laughs> I wouldn't mind having. Uh... Wouldn't mind having his money. <laughs> I wouldn't mind having two months out of every four months in a place like that. Then he was saying, sitting up on his roof and looking at that view. Didn't you ever really sort of feel like? Going out in it. Well, we were out in it, right? Yeah, yeah, but you know, I mean, the bit in the villages and stuff, like the bit that everyone else, 95% of them, were doing around there, except for the converts on the hill. You know, it's incredible stuff, you know. Uh, and then, uh, then the next scene burns out white again, and the next scene is just this monkey who just comes up and humps this other monkey. <laughs> And then they just jump off and they just start sort of picking each other. It's great stuff. And then <laughs> there's a great one of you. It's like you come up on one side onto the roof and you walk up and you look like a student of philosophy you know, with a tape recorder. And then. <laughs> yeah, I've got all the soundtracks too. It's that thing, you know, we probably should have sort of... Say, Been ourselves. More. Yeah, a lot more, yeah. That, that is the, the biggest joke, the biggest joke, to be yourselves. Because that was the purpose of going there, to try and find mm -hmm. who yourself it really is. Yeah, well, we found that, didn't we? And if you were really yourself, you wouldn't be any of who we are now. Mm. <laughs> Or act naturally then. Is 
so they've left Twickenham and they've gone to their own Apple Studios in Savile Row by that point and it's the fab sitting around talking about their time in India and the sort of irony of all these white people you know Paul was talking about this this sea of white yes. faces of all the girlfriends and all the entourage and they're all these uh, I mean not all the Beatles were, were middle class but most of their entourage uh, were or in some cases quite posh and they've all gone to India and they're sort of ruminating on the fact that they didn't really have very much contact with ordinary people in no. Shikesh or, or ordinary Indian people and they didn't really act naturally. The dissolution of the Beatles in a way is just them divesting themselves of all their kind of costumes. Mm. Ringo's Indian shirt that he quite likes even though he's not that keen on India and yes. John's talking about his Sergeant Pepper jacket. It's sort of getting rid of the costumes of yes. being the fabs and just being John Paul George and Ringo. Yeah, just mates in the studio. But it's not as though by being in India they seem to have particularly harmed anybody. There's no sort of allegations that, that at least when they were with the Maharishi that anything particularly bad happened. It's just more that, I mean, they, they seem to have been quite switched on about what was going on around them and that's something that comes across in Peter Jackson's documentary. They're just aware of the fact they just didn't really interact with people in India very much. Yeah. They only saw one aspect of it. No, oh, it is not that uncommon of a tourist experience, especially if you're a somewhat well-off white tourist in India. That's a, that's a fairly common thing to go to. So I think we should have a music break in a minute, but I'd like to talk before the break very briefly about another Joe Massett film made after Zachariah and Wonderwall, which is his rock concert Led Zeppelin movie that we watched, The Song Remains the Same. And it connects back to what we're talking about in relation to the idea of a guru and George Harrison taking certainly the idea of Ravi Shankar as his musical guru quite seriously. The word is uh, Shishya. Shishya. So Guru and Shishya. Oh, okay. When he was interviewed when Wonderwall was restored in the early noughties, Joe Massa had this to say. Uh, I got the idea in India with the Beatles and at the end I was with George and John and they were doing this duel of who could out meditate who. I got this idea making a western about two guys having a duel. I went to Hollywood unfortunately and made a deal. So. Zachariah is very interesting because it's got inside it this idea of sort of two meditative gunslingers, which is John yes. and George. But then he's also basing it on the Herman Hesse novel Siddharth. Now we watched the Conrad Rooks film of this with Shashi Kapoor yes. in, in the Siddharth role. Yes. So it's a novel about somebody who, who follows the Buddha but doesn't become the Buddha. Yes. And it's what the Buddha's life would have been like if he'd just been a normal person, yes. basically. Uh, what do we think of the Shashi Kapoor film? It just wasn't what I expected, and I don't even know what I was expecting. It's quite raunchy. Um, there's, there's quite a lot of sex in it. Yeah, yeah. For an Indian film of that period, yeah, it's much uh, more sexual than I Shashi thought. Shashi Kapoor you know, is in a very un-Shashi Kapoor-like role. What do you mean by that? Well, you know, he was just not doing his Bollywood heartthrob routine in He's it. showing his acting chops. Yeah, yeah. But also it's just very um I don't know, it's it was sorry, this is going to sound quite cliche, but it's 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 like a it's like a tone poem. Yeah, it's very rather than a film yeah. to be honest. And there's a lot of people wandering around looking into the sunset. I mean to be fair that yeah. is an accurate depiction I mean, of your country. Yeah, for, I Having mean, yeah. lived in Bombay with you yeah. for quite a period of time. Sure. It's amazing to me that all 1.8 billion of you get anything done. All you seem to do is stare at the bloody sunset. Um, I was just thinking, because the, the, the other sort of, if you have to make the comparison of a very high profile Bollywood actor playing the, the Buddha or the Siddhartha, the a uh, very clunking comparison is um, Ahsoka hmm. with Shah Rukh Khan, uh, which follows you know Shah Rukh Khan as, as 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 the king, and then being 
being through war and violence sort of changing him um and then he goes on to become ashoka you've seen ashoka, ashoka yeah, a few yeah. years haven't you i mean it's it's not like siddhartha i no. mean it's it's an out and out bollywood film by I mean scale tone so ashoka's a, a king of india from bronze age times yeah uh, he was the first indian monarch to try and introduce buddhism as yes. the unitary religion yes and the film i remember when it was released in the 90s it was sold as like the indian version of the last emperor it was this kind of epic sumptuous yes. luxury cast yes absolutely historical yeah um, um, beautiful cinematography it's directed by santosh shivan who is one of india's best cinematographers but he directed that film and you know it's got Karina Kapoor, you know, major mainstream. Yeah, so it was sold also in India. I think it was sold as sort of Bollywood's Last Emperor. Didn't do really that well. Not a great film. It's got some beautiful music in, but it's just it's just all over the. I remember renting it from Blockbuster and watching it and thinking it was yeah. a kind of triumph of style over substance. Yeah, I I think it didn't really a, amount no, to very much. No, um, I, it's not like I went into to that the thinking oh is it going to be like this but it I, I, I just a very not I don't think strange is the right word because ambient. I felt, yeah I felt quite calm it's very, very ambient very sort of peaceful meditative meditative of all of, things a film about the Buddha which is but, but I know shocker I've come to you to learn about love from the first glance I knew that you would be my teacher my guru I have been told that you are a Brahmin, a man with some knowledge of writing, that you seek service with a merchant. But what have you learned that you can give? I can think, I can wait, I can fast. Have you ever made love to a woman? No. Have you ever kissed a woman? No. So Massa, who was a very interesting guy, he was a, a Cuban guy from America. He fought in the Cuban War, uh, so he knew actually about conflict and, and fighting. Uh, he was part of the flotsam of Americans who moved to swinging London in the late 60s because that was felt to be the centre of the, the great sort of cultural hurricane that was raging at the time with the Beatles at the very centre of that. And he, at least for a period of time, quite successfully managed to attach himself to George Harrison and to Apple Records. Sakurai was going to be a, an Apple film uh, early on. But in the end, he, well, he says in this interview, I went into a bad period after making the Led Zeppelin film, The Song Remains the Same. I made a terrible film, a motorcycle film with Barry Sheen. It was low budget and we didn't have enough to do stunts and Barry couldn't act. Just the small things. It's quite unfortunate. I mean, he had a kind of little career bounce at the end because he made this album with Slim Gaylord. So it's not as if everything ended badly for him. But then, so wedged between the Barry Sheen film um, and Zachariah is this Led Zeppelin movie, The Song Remains the Same. Uh, now, that is, in a way, also quite ponderous and meditative. Yes. Uh, he. So he convinced Zeppelin's management that he was the guy to make a rock concert movie. And we'll go on to talk about this, but this was a period where if you were a freak, a hippie, you couldn't necessarily get to see your rock icons. Yes. Because you may not live near a, a, a stadium or a club yes. where they perform. So there were movies of rock concerts where you could kind of get some of that energy. And it wasn't... It was not. It wasn't not a commercial success, right? The song remains the yeah. same. Commercially, it did quite well. It made about ten million when it was it was first released in '77. It took ages, obviously, for them to yes. refilm everything and yes. then actually make a motion picture. Just you know, it's it's not exactly a commercial pot boiler film. No. And narratively speaking, I mean, the story is quite tenuous. It's got these very, very long it feels musical like a, numbers and then it's yeah. got these sort of odd 
attempts to do little bits of story. So there's a kind of weird gangster thing at the beginning with some gangsters yeah. who are also werewolves and monsters. It felt like a very long meatloaf. Yeah, it's kind of got that sort of Jim Steiner, yeah. bad out of hell type yeah. of quality, hasn't it? Particularly all that kind of King Arthur Galadriel yes. stuff yes. with Robert Plant being yes. a medieval troubadour yes. stroke knight. Yes. Quite odd. Yeah. Uh, a 1976 midnight screening of the film was organised by Atlantic Records, uh, Zeppelin's record label. At which label president Ahmed Etigan reportedly fell asleep. There you are, ringing endorsement. Kind of tells you everything you need to know. Massett was not only fired from making it by Zeppelin's management, Oof. he then refused to hand the film over. Mm. So Zeppelin's manager then went round to his house and restrained on his goods. They took his 16mm oh, editor dear. away, and then to get that back, he had to hand over the film. Speaking about The Song Remains the Same in the NME in 1976, Page stated, The Song Remains the Same is not a great film, but there's no point in making excuses. It's just a reasonably honest statement of where we were at at that particular time. It's very difficult for me to watch it now, but I'd like to see it in a year's time just to see how it stands up. Fair pretty, pretty honest. But the thing about it which does really interest me is, uh, it is, I think, an accurate record of incredibly long drum solos. Yes. Yes. Part of me is still experiencing John Bonham's very, very long drum solo from yes. Song Remains the Same. As somebody who's not kind of grown up in that kind of prog rock, stadium rock, early 70s idiom, I mean I did because mm. in my household there were two religions, Catholicism and Bowie. So we were taken to the cinema to watch Ziggy Stardust movie like it was going to church and boy was it made clear to us how it was doing us some good yeah. as well. So I kind of am used to sure. that rock pomposity. It doesn't really assault me. What did you make of all that? Just the kind of, the machismo and the grandeur of it all. I mean, I come from Bollywood, so. <laughs> Part of the course. Like, where, where, are the, where, are, where are the dirty background dancers? doing incredibly complicated synchronized um, choreography. It, it wasn't pompous enough for me. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do that kind of rock god level of self-aggrandizement, you may as well... T turn it up to 11. Turn it up to 11, yeah. There's a bit where it cuts to, some, to a lady in the audience who, if it isn't Mimi Farina, Joan Byers' sister, it's somebody looking remarkably like yes, Mimi Farina. Yes, and she's yes. kind of looking at, at, at Robert Plant and his hipster jeans and his... Very tight. Very tight hipster jeans yes, and no Yes, there are no lots arse. of low angle shots of uh, Robert Plant's... Um, arse. Nether regions. Yeah. But it's not... I mean, this is not to take anything away from Robert Plant, but... Uh, Frankly, I've seen bigger. Oh. But you're led to think that yes. this woman in the audience is just of you know indeterminate ethnicity yes. is thoroughly enraptured with yes. the whole thing. Yes, yes, it's a, it's a bit of a kind of um, sound and fury signifying nothing yeah. type of thing, isn't it? Yeah, it it sort of uh, I mean, like you say, it just seems to be an accurate snapshot of the band status at that time. That. They could have probably just wanted to do whatever and people would have just said yeah sure let's do it so given that you see in that film and then as Massett kind of fesses up to with the Sheen film that he made his tendency towards out there kind of epic imagery did start to get a bit out of hand yeah. in the latter part of his career which I think in a minute when we go on to talk about Zachariah it's an interesting film, including because actually all the symbolism and the psychedelic imagery isn't too overboard, I don't think. No, it's actually it's done not. quite well. Yeah, that's what I was saying. It's a technically very competent film. There are lots of really nice shots in it. It's not sort of a haha, if you're stoned, you could sit back and laugh at the fact that you could see the boom light of the fucking light. There's none of that film. 
when we were talking about electronic music in this period and in particular how the tendency of early electronic keyboards to not stay in tune meant you often had things that had this very mm. kind of melancholic timber and that makes me think about an earlier phase of electronic music so I'm now talking about music beginning in the 1930s going into the 1960s and 70s produced on the Ons Martinet one of the early electronic keyboards there is a wonderful and I really do mean this documentary by the the French Canadian documentary maker Caroline Martel Wavemakers which is about the whole history of the instrument and it features these three I think breathtaking tracks
sorry, Maurice Shah's theme from Eyes Without a Face. You will need to collect your things. Music for Films has a new favourite track and it needs your room. And that track is the last of those three pieces of music you heard. That was the theme from Masters of Mystery, the French radio uh, mystery series. Les Maîtres du Mystère. Je ne sais pas où je venir à vélo, le cimetière, c'est quand même un peu loin. Oui, Alors, d'accord. Je... Ma voiture est devant l'entrée. Merci, monsieur. Merci, Micheline. Je peux It began on French radio in 1957 and was advertised as une film radiophonique. But in 1965, the two producers uh, had a falling out and there were two different shows, had basically the same format. I love it. It's like Jean Cocteau or Georges Franchu doing Twin Peaks. Yeah, yeah. And what I love about all these old radio shows, this one from France, the ones from America, is it's just the quality. Yes. They have these full uh, radio orchestras. Yep. If you listen to a Lux Theatre version of of a Hollywood movie, the soundtrack is as good, sometimes better, than... The original score for the movie. I mean, they, the the sumptuous recording the standards. Voice performances are fantastic. And of course, this was a time in France where movies were not on French television very yes. much, and there were a huge number of American movies, which obviously during the Nazi occupation of France, uh, French people, great French lovers of cinema like François Truffaut and the people that wrote Kaida Cinema had not been able to see all these movies during the war years. So there was an enormous hunger yes. for the timber, the tonality, yes. uh, the texture. The Frenchness. The Frenchness of cinema. Yes. The Frenchness, but also the, the, the Hollywoodness, yes. the cinematicness yes. of cinema. Yes. And Masters of Mystery is this kind of wonderful distillation of all those things in sound. They're just beautiful kind of sound love poems to, yes. to not just cinema but also suspense yes mystery I, I warmly recommend them but the point of putting that compilation together apart from the fact that it's beautiful music is who would have thought from uh, Jerry Anderson's Captain Scarlet or Jerry Anderson's live action film Doppelganger not a great film it has to be said you would get something which I don't think there's any question that that track from Doppelganger by Barry Gray is a masterpiece of the Ons Martinet. And certainly in the documentary and for fans of this instrument, Barry Gray's work is held up as, you know, up there with some of the great composers who, who use this instrument. To relate that back to this 1971 Joe Massett film, Sakurai, because it kind of brings together all the things that we've been talking about. Some of the aspects of it that I wanted to briefly highlight. One is, I think, Elvin Jones, the black gunfighter in Sakurai. His presence is very interesting. So he doesn't do a really long drum solo, like John Bonham in this song remains the same, but he does do a, a drum solo. He was in most of the important jazz combos of the, of the 50s and 60s. He was in Sonny Rowland's band. Uh, he played with Mingus. But crucially, he was John Coltrane's drummer in the John Coltrane Quartet. So if anyone recognises mm. his drumming, it's probably from John Coltrane's signature recording of Favourite Things. Mm. 
So we have this deceptively sophisticated polyrhythmic style, which you can hear a very kind of low-key mm. version of in this classic recording. What's on display in Zachariah is a bit of him playing the drums, because you're mm. not going to have Elvin Jones in your movie and not have him play the drums. But I think his performance in it, I think he's got real presence, mm. though it's, it's, it's quite understated. But I find it really interesting. They've tried to kind of dumb up the concert movie in yeah. Zachariah. Yeah. So it's got some very, very interesting musicians in it. It's got Country Joe and the Fish, who do some acting. They're the kind of the, the outlaw gang that John Rubenstein's Zachariah joins as a gunslinger. You've also got White Lightning, another band of that period, I think. That's all I can find to say about them. <laughs> They're perfectly good. Now this will surprise you. Another act who are playing in uh, Bell's boudoir. What is that sequence where yes. Zachariah has uh, sex with this kind of stage girl, Bell, where it's kind of a theatre and it's kind of a bedroom. That's quite odd. But the band that's playing in that, the New York Rock and Roll Ensemble, were famous for playing acid rock numbers but in full Bib and Tucker they wore even sure. dress that was kind of their shtick but one of their number and you can hear them playing on this uh, track from the film Gravedigger is Marty Fullerman better known to us nowadays as Mark Snow creator of the theme to The X-Files oh of course is playing on this track so you know, that's a very interesting, unexpected overlap. But the one which, apart from Elvin Jones being in this movie, which absolutely blew my mind, is the art direction, I think, is quite beautiful. So it has lots of sequences of deserts, and yeah. there's a lot of horse riding. Yes. But they've kind of built these theatrical flats, these kind of symbolic representations of Western yes. towns and what have you. But they're kind of in the style of... Marie Kokoga from The Fool, the Dutch art collective mm. who did the artwork for Wonderwall, which is this very vivid, mm. uh, you know, obviously now we think of it as psychedelic, but it's sort of rainbow colours, basically, mm. and very vivid peaches and very vivid oranges. They've built all these flats yes. that are kind of both, you know, Wild West bars, but are also a bit like crazy kind of hippie sculptures out in the desert. Well, those are designed by Jeremy Kay, who also did the art direction for, wait for it, Easy Rider. Oh, okay, yeah. So it's then got that sure. actual genuine yes. link to yes. the Rosetta Stone of yes. uh, hippie outlaw filmmaking. you mention in the exotic 60s stew the psychedelic gumbo <laughs> that forms Zachariah <laughs> uh, are of course Firesign Theatre who co-wrote the script with Joe Massett. Psychedelic gumbo I think that is you've somehow landed on the perfect way to describe that film. Firesign Theatre uh, often crop up on our friend Jim Freud's show Out of the Wolf on WBI in Brooklyn. Uh, they were for a long time part of the cultural furniture of the counterculture and we're still on NPR shows way into the early noughts. Los Angeles, he walks again by night. Out of the fog, into the smog. <laughs> Relentlessly, ruthlessly, I wonder where Ruth is. doggedly, toward his weekly meeting with the unknown. At 4th and Drucker, he turns left. At Drucker and 4th, he turns right. He crosses MacArthur Park and walks into a great sandstone building. Oh, my nose! Groping for the door, he steps inside. Climbs the 13 steps to his office. He walks in. He's ready for mystery. He's ready for excitement. He's ready for anything. He's... Nick Danger, third eye. A pizza to go and no anchovies? No anchovies? You've got the wrong man. I spell my name, Danger. What? Founded by Peter Bergman, uh, who also 
invented the term the lovin and staged the first lovin but you can hear from that little clip i've played of perhaps their most famous creation nick danger third eye that they were very strongly influenced in their radio work and their comedy albums by the goons now isn't that interesting it, it brings us back to it is where george harrison got the idea for playing around with the sitar yes. in the first place which yes. is that peter sellers goodness gracious me voice that he did and he was going to be the bad guy in uh, hard day's night and then they abandoned that idea and they kept that one scene in the indian restaurant and that's how it all started so the goons again the goons is a oh, kind somehow of somehow sort of a subtle but essential ingredient yes, in this psychedelic in this, gumbo yes, in this timeline yes John Rubenstein, who is the lead, I think is very charming, uh, very handsome, very, very good handsome. He's carried on working. He's the son of the great Polish-American classical pianist Arthur Rubenstein. He's a very gifted uh, pianist and composer in his own right. And in fact, there is some of the music in Zacharias by Rubenstein. In fact, you can hear it now. But he's carried on working in all kind of media. He teaches uh, how to audition for musical theatre in California and he's got a very successful TV career. He's been in all kinds of things. The thing I saw him in most recently is he had a, a part in For All Mankind, that uh, Apple NASA show, space show. Mm. So he's very much still uh, a force to be reckoned with in popular entertainment. But then of course Don Johnson what do we say about Don Johnson in this movie? He's so good looking. Distractively good looking. The 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 final sequence of them sort of riding off into the sunset on horseback is just again. I was like, I've no idea what happened in this film, but oh, it's oh, that's nice. Oh, that's lovely. Because unlike the Comrade Brooks take on Siddhartha, where mm. uh, Spoilers, it doesn't end well for Siddharth. Oh, no. Uh, in this version, there's a sort of suggested uh, homosexual yes, relationship, yes. or kind of, at least an attraction between yes. these two friends. Yes. They're also both incredibly skilled gunslingers. Yes. But John Rubenstein, Zachariah, chooses not to take the path of being a professional gunslinger and outlaw, and in fact just leads a very quiet life, and is kind of tutored by this old-timer who sits and they they look out at the desert and the sunset and ruminate on the nature of life the universe and everything whereas john johnson's gunslinger eventually has this you know this epic standoff with um elvin jones's black hat gunslinger and slays him and becomes you know the the, the baddest varmint in the west yeah so inevitably there's got to be some resolution and what don johnson's character wants by way of resolution is pistols at dawn well shoot out but then again spoilers yes they resolve everything and yes what they get at the end of it is brotherhood and lifelong oh, friendship they ride off into the sunset together but also what a wonderful kind of optimistic yeah upbeat yes very 60s positive yes yes end to the movie you know my 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 mind drifted a bit and when my my attention came back it was just Oh, that's a nice, that's a nice shot. Oh, that that looks interesting. Still not sure what's going on, but fair enough. These were films that were made for people who were stoned. Well, yeah. By people yeah, who were exactly. stoned. Yeah, that's exactly it. So if you get yeah. a kind of monged yeah. stream of consciousness vibe from Great. Joe Massa cinema, it's, it's by design. Yeah, yeah. 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 No, but I, I think it's visually very striking. Yeah. I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, lots of really pretty and interesting cinematography in it, so. But what it does with the Hermann Hesse novel and with the idea of the Buddha and Siddhartha, because it's based very, very strongly in Hermann Hesse's novel, mm. which is itself reflecting on Hesse's experience of, of India, because he, tra he travelled to and uh, was quite sort of extensively involved with India in a period, period of his life, Hermann Hesse. Zachariah 
abandons the Eastern mysticism. Yeah. We've spent these shows talking about the Beatles' psychedelic experience of India. At the end of this, what we've ended up with is something very traditional, very American. Yes. Gunslingers, the Wild West, cowboys. And one of the things I think is interesting about Zachariah, uh, by its absence, is no Indians. Yes. Yeah. The native people do not exist no, in Zachariah. Yes. To come to the end of this discussion, do you feel the kind of legacy of George Harrison, the legacy of Wonderwall music, and the little role that Joe Massot kind of played in in leaving us this wonderful set of recordings of Indian, of Indian classical musicians, do you think that Harrison's role in, in leaving us this set of recordings I'm kind of answering the question for you, but I mean, I feel that he emerges with it pretty well, actually. Yeah, I mean, he, he, it's, it's always nice when, and I, I'm not saying it's always just nice when white people take an interest in your culture, because it's like saying there's something special about white people. If white people are acknowledging your culture, suddenly your culture's made it now. Um, it's not from that sort of perspective, but it's just nice when someone um, and you know it's also sort of hits differently for us as a couple because we're an interracial couple I'm from India you're from here and we've spent a lot of you know we've, we've, we've been together for a while and it's always nice when it's all what I'm trying to say is I think it's always nice for people when anyone else who's not from that culture takes an interest in where you're from and you know something that's very important to where you come from and it's just sincere mm. and it's not a tokenistic or superficial or when they don't try and take it and then sort of present it as oh you know George Harrison never did George Harrison has discovered the mystical sitar mm. and here he is presenting it to the world. Um, he just sort of, and what was really sweet when I was researching for our first show on this was just seeing him hanging out with the musicians in Bombay. It wasn't famous George Harrison's here and he's teaching, telling you what to do. It was just, he. it, it sounds like he just sort of knew that he had experts in the room and let them do their thing and he would come in with it with some input because he was producing the soundtrack for that show but it was just musicians hanging out and it's it's all just very sincere well this uh, discussion of east and west meeting and getting on uh, yeah sets the stage for our next two shows which we'll probably do in a couple of months when we record our next two shows which is all six Arthur films we're going to have to address ourselves to a question which has affected people of all races and cultures and backgrounds which is what do you do when you're caught between the moon and New York City what would you do, Shoti Narayan Swami, from your background? Um, that would be, you know, when we talked about those four stages of life, the last one yeah. where you just go off, it's got sannyas, uh, that would be my cue to take sannyas, I'm, I'm out of here. Just nick off. Bye. Well, that's what we're going to do now, but it's been an absolute pleasure watching these Joe Massett films with you, Dr. Shoti Narayan Swami, and uh, thank you very much for your insights and your time. Thank you very much. Our podcast is More Music for Films and you can find it on thebeekeepers.com or your podcasting application of choice. Mm -hmm.